Good morning. I've really enjoyed the videos that we've gotten to watch and hearing people's different perspectives about Advent themes. But to hear somebody say they felt joy in their knees, I don't think that was even possible for the last 25 years for me and probably for some of you. Several weeks ago, Janine and I participated in a demonstration in downtown Portland. Over a thousand people were there to protest the ongoing violence in Gaza, the continuing seizure of land, and an occupation that displaced about 750,000 Palestinians when the nation of Israel was first formed. And among that crowd, you could feel and see the anger and the frustration and the outrage on their faces and again through their voices. The protest was held at the same time and location as the annual Portland Christmas tree lighting. Hundreds of people gathered to sing Christmas carols and to be reminded there's still reason for hope and peace and joy in the world, or maybe just a shop. But there were smiling children and happy couples looking forward to being part of this long-standing tradition. Chants of free Palestine and ceasefire now either drowned out or drowned out by Silent Night, Jingle Bell Rock, and All I Want for Christmas is You. As we were leaving, a 75-foot Douglas fir was illuminated with 9,500 LED lights signaling the start of the Christmas season while hundreds of cell phones flashed on as a call to end the violence and the injustice that's going on in that region. In the all too common collision of differing experiences and separate views about what ultimately matters in a world that is marked by sorrow and happiness, that's marked by pain and comfort, my mind was drawn to the heart of Advent the Christ child who was and is coming, the one in whom the world finds its true hope, its lasting peace, its ultimate joy, and shines as this bright light smack dab in the midst of sometimes seemingly overwhelming darkness. Of all the Gospels, I've come to believe that Luke's version is the most unsettling. In it, you find Jesus at his most radical self. His teachings are raw and pointed. It's in Luke's gospel that we hear the unvarnished truth of this great reversal that theologians talk about, that has and will take place through this Christ, where rulers are brought down, where the poor are lifted up, where grateful sinners are welcomed in and grumpy religionists are turned away. The message of Luke, I think, challenges how we relate to God, to one another, to money, to possessions, to, to the whole of creation. It's often at times more stark in its contrast than the other three Gospels. But just as challenging, the Gospel of Luke is a call to prayer. Again, more clearly than the other three in Luke, Jesus' ministry is sustained through his close and constant abiding with the Father. 
On regular occasions, he goes to be alone to pray, to be renewed and strengthened through those prayers that will empower and animate his life and his actions that keep him centered in God's will and way. At least for me, it makes me wonder if Jesus needed to be that grounded in prayer. Maybe I do too. Nah. (laughs) Over the last few weeks, as I've been reading the Advent stories, I've also been challenged by another thread that seems to be woven right at the heart of Luke's gospel. And it's all about joy. Joy and just how central it is to the message of Christ, to the life of his followers, and to the witness that we have an opportunity to share with a watching world. Of all the books in the New Testament, Luke mentions joy most often. From the announcement of John the Baptist's birth in Luke 14, 1.14, where he says, He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, to that cosmic and terrifying light show that Paul Bach read us this morning where the angels say to the shepherds, don't be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for everybody. News of the coming Christ is this message of joy. Joy shows up in other places as you read through Luke. And then, as if for one last reminder, the gospel closes in chapter 24 with the disciples watching Jesus ascend and the scripture says they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with what? With great joy. But how, some of us wonder, in a world filled with so much sadness, with so much suffering, with so much injustice, how on earth can one find joy? When so many lives are living a moment from tears, and I think all of ours are, we always live a moment from tears. How is it that we are, how, we, how might we dare to let those tears be tears of joy? I often run across the sign or hear the phrase, if you're not outraged, you're not paying attention. Just last week, I was in a conversation with a group of Quakers talking about what's going on in Gaza, and the person, sure enough, just like Walker, said, if you're not outraged, you're not paying attention. Which in my mind is, of course, true. How can those of us, at least people who've known so little real suffering, like me, go through life indifferent to the injustice around us? I'm not sure you can. Unless, of course, you choose to look away or stay distracted or maybe most frighteningly tempting to me to be, just be so comfortably numbed by the message, it's not your responsibility or concern. I think there is a time and a place for holy rage and righteous anger where the fiery table-turning passion of Jesus gets released through our voices and our actions It's important to have those boots on the street where we let the world know we're feeling this sense of discomfort and upset and even outrage. It can be a powerful and catharsis for our own well-being. It matters to those that we seek to stand alongside who are experiencing the injustice. 
And it's important, it is an important way to resist and to speak truth to power. Paying attention to injustice and suffering demands our notice, even when it stirs up this discomfort in us and in others. But if this is all we feel, all we speak, if, if this is what comes to characterize our witness to a watching world, I wonder if we're really living in and living out the good news that the angels spoke. See, Jesus was more than a man of sorrows. His life and message was more, much more, than prophetic rage or righteous indignation or even a constant cry for justice. He, he came and he continues to come to you, to me, to anybody who's paying attention to offer joy, deep, deep, deep and abiding joy. John 15 is Jesus' brilliant teaching on abiding obedience and remaining in God's overwhelming love. And as he summarizes that teaching, he says, I've said these things to you so that my joy might be in you and your joy might be complete. It's the same joy Jesus spoke of in John 16, where he said, no one can take it from you. No one can take it from you, though they line up to try, though individuals in your life and systems of power may seek to try to take that joy from you, Jesus says no one can. Jesus said joy was essential to receiving his kingdom in Matthew 13, where he tells the story of the fellow who's out wandering across a field and he stumbles upon a treasure and he digs it up. And he goes home for the joy, it says, and he sells everything in order to have that treasure. Maybe if we don't experience the joy, we never get to the place of being willing to release everything else that would otherwise belong to us or distract us. This is the joy that is the fruit of the Spirit. The evidence Paul would write or say that is evidence of God's Spirit abiding in us and changing us. Paul echoes the same theme in Romans chapter 14, verse 7, where he says, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and... If I was in Africa, you would have all said it right there. You're, you're supposed to follow along. And... Oh my gosh, there we do. Uh, joy in the Holy Spirit. And Galatians 4, to me, has been always one of the saddest verses in all the Bible, where Paul is writing, and he's talking to this church that had kind of turned this relationship with the living Christ into this, um, into this uh, religion of li list of rules. And Paul's question to them is, what happened to your joy? What happened to your joy? And I think that's a great question for us sometimes to have to reflect on. And it may not just be religion and rule following that cause us to lose that joy. But joy, at least as I'm reading this text, rereading the scriptures, it seems to me is part of the package. Not giddy happiness, not simple moments of exhilaration, but that deep abiding gladness, the perpetual gladness that comes from knowing the living God. A favorite Quaker 
uh, author who was both an activist, that is, one who put their faith into action in the world, and who also modeled and wrote extensively on the practice of learning to live each and every day in the fullness of God's presence, once said this. Jesus promised the disciples who would follow him only three things, that they should be absurdly joyful, entirely fearless, and always in trouble. Absurdly joyful, entirely fearless, always in trouble. That phrase, absurdly joyful, has always captured me. It's held me. It's in some ways been a gauge or a plumb line by which I try to pay attention to my life. To measure myself as I wage the battle to not succumb to constant despair or rage or indifference or apathy. Each of which, I think, has the capacity to poison our souls and warp and diminish the good news that we seek to invite others to share in. Now we can spend equal time rooting out what it means to live entirely fearless or always in trouble, but you know what, I think we actually talk about those quite often. What I don't think most Christians do well is live into the possibility of an absurdly joyful existence. You see, as much as I believe in the phrase, if you're not outraged, you're not paying attention, I also think and believe pretty firmly, if you're not absurdly joyful, you're not paying attention. Now, I, I can qualify that with lots of different things, recognizing that there's all kinds of things that impinge on our lives, both from within and without. But it, this is at least something for us to reflect on, to have to wrestle with seriously of are we experiencing the fullness of God if there's the absence of joy, at least for an extended period of time? I think this is at least part of the Advent story. Shepherds are watching their flocks by night. Being a shepherd before then, back in the days of the patriarchs, that was a noble profession. That was part of the family business. But likely, by the time we get to Jesus' day, Shepherds had fallen to the bottom rung of society. They were unskilled laborers, laborers, they were nobodies, often labeled as sinners by virtue of their vocation, and seen by most people in society as dishonest and um, indecent. They were among the poor, despite working really long hours and often in really dangerous circumstances. And so if anybody had the right or a legitimate reason to feel outraged, I think they probably qualified. But on this night, the angels appear, and they're paying attention. Now, you might argue they had no choice, but at least as I read the scripture and as I think about my own life, um, sometimes we manage to be pretty oblivious, even when God shows up in really powerful ways. There are days and times of visitation when God comes near to us. But the question is, are we paying attention? In the case of the shepherds, they not only noticed, but they responded to the call and the invitation to come and see, and with joy, they went off to find him. And in fact, were the first ones to find him. Later, they returned telling everyone what they had seen and experienced, 
and presumably went right back into their ordinary lives, back to their still struggling existence, back to still living in the, at the bottom of the totem pole. But now, glorifying God, praising God. And maybe, the text doesn't say it, but maybe they were anchored in a newfound joy that strengthened them, that sustained them in this absurd and perpetual gladness, in the God who had come and is coming, and at least according to Luke, is going to turn the world and is turning the world on its head. I actually think if we take the life of Jesus seriously, um, we don't partner with him fully unless we know his joy. That's what the writer of Hebrews implies. Therefore, since such a great cloud of witnesses surround us, let's throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles us. And let's run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him, this absurdly joyful one, who endured such opposition so that you won't grow weary or lose heart. I don't know if we can live entirely fearless lives, Ones where we're really willing and able to get in trouble constantly. In which we're, we find ourselves fully, unless we're fully and sustainably rooted in that gladness. If we don't somehow keep joy in view in the midst of everything else that's going on. Again, it seemed important to Jesus, maybe, maybe, it ought to be important to us as well. The same George Fox who upon hearing from God that there is one Christ Jesus who can speak to your condition in the midst of all his sorrow and heartache about his own life and the state of the world felt his heart leap for joy. That same George Fox once um, looked out upon the sadness and violence and injustice of his world, and he saw an ocean of darkness. And he could have kept his gaze fixed there, become so consumed by that ocean of darkness that his anger and his rage could have consumed him, or his apathy and his indifference numb him. But instead, he paid attention to another reality, this ocean of light that was somehow over that ocean of darkness that he believed was going to overwhelm it eventually and dispel it for good. I don't believe that joy is an antidote to rage or sorrow or grief, but it just might be what we need to keep in perspective for our sake and for the sake of others. Maybe joy, if we're willing to pay attention to it, is in some way essential to living fully into this life that God has called us to in Christ. So, friends, do you know joy these days?
Do you know joy? Can you recall that day of visitation that made your heart leap? That time when you stumbled upon a treasure so wonderful, you were willing to sell everything in order to possess it. There's some queries I'm going to read, but what I want to leave with you as we enter a time of open worship is a blessing. So queries you might consider like, is joy a vivid part of your relationship with God? Is it vivid? Does joy have residence in your life, or is it just an occasional visitor? How do you pay attention to joy? Does our community bear witness to joy? inspire joy in others. Here's the blessing that I'd like to read. This blessing had big ideas about what it wanted to say, what it wanted you to know, to see. This blessing wanted to open your eyes to the joy that lives in such strange company with sorrow wanted to make sure to tell you, lest you forget, that no matter how long it seems absent, no matter how quiet it becomes, joy has never been far from you. Holding a space of celebration, watching for you, humming as it keeps vigil. But now that it comes time to speak, comes time to lay these words on your brow, your beating heart, all this blessing can think to say, is this. Look, your life a candle, this day a match. Strike it and see what blazes, what fire comes to sing in you.